You're listening to the Mount Pleasant Podcast. To learn more about our church, visit us online at www.mpbc.church. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. We continue in our series this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we continue with our series of the book of 1 Corinthians. Fascinating series so far. Marriage and family. Recently our family was watching a movie where there were uh, two older ladies from Greece and they were talking they were talking about marriage and the one lady said in their, her Greek accent, she said, yes my dear, the man is the head of the house for sure. The other lady said to her, yes my dear, but the wife is the neck and she can turn the head any way she wants to. <laughs> and us fellas, we know that. We might not want to admit that, but we know that. Man, I'm so thankful for my wife. I'm so thankful this day on Father's Day for our fathers, and so I'm grateful for my father and, and for all the dads. But I'm grateful for my wife as I think about marriage and family. We'll, we'll, if the Lord lets us live, we'll be married 30 years this December 22nd. So thankful. I bet you're thankful for your marriage as well. So grateful for Pam. I'm reminded every day that marriage, my marriage, is not about me. It's about her. And I, and I really believe she feels the same about me. Marriage is mutual submission. It's agape love. For you see, God is the designer of marriage. He is the designer of family. And the Bible tells us that God designed marriage and family to be about learning to work together, submitting to one another. And I want to show you a quote from a book before we get going with the passage today that, I, that I've recently read. It's a fascinating book, very profound book. It's called The Mystery of Marriage by a man named Mike Mason. It's very deep, very profound, and I've enjoyed reading it. And I want to show you a couple of paragraphs that, that speaks to this idea of mutual submission. Take a look at the screens. Holy matrimony, like other holy orders, was never intended as a comfort station for lazy people. Amen. Marriage is not a comfort station for lazy people. On the contrary, it is a systematic program of deliberate, thoroughgoing self-sacrifice. It's a radical step, and it is not intended for anyone who is not prepared, indeed eager, to surrender his own will and to be wholeheartedly submissive to the will of another. For there is no way to surrender the will except by surrendering it to another will. And there is no way to attack the root of selfishness except by disciplining and subduing that determined monster of self-aggrandizement known as the human will. Mason continues by saying, in marriage it so happens that the Lord has devised a particularly gentle but no less disciplined and effective means for helping men and women to humble themselves, to surrender their errant wills. Even the closest couples will inevitably find themselves engaged in a struggle of wills, for marriage is a wild, audacious attempt at an almost impossible degree of cooperation between two powerful centers of self-assertion. Marriage cannot help being a furnace of conflict, a crucible in which these two wills must be melted down and purified and made to conform. 
Most people do not realize that this is what they're signing up for when they get married, but this is what invariably faces them. Man, that's so true. Just profound couple of paragraphs there. I loved what Mason said when he said two wheels melted together. What does that mean? Well, when you melt two things together, they become one. They're melted into one. This is how Jesus describes marriage. He said himself, see the screens, Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus answered, have you not read that he, that's God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become what? One, one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, us preachers say at weddings, let not man separate. Think of this, marriage and family. In a marriage, God can take a man and a woman and make them one, and that union has the capability of producing another human being. That's astounding when you think about it. I'll tell you something else that's astounding. The fact that upon salvation, the God of the universe, by way of the Holy Spirit, can come and indwell my spirit, your spirit, and you be born again. That's astounding. That transaction of being born again that makes us then part of the bride of Christ. Did you know that's how God uses the analogy of describing the relationship between His Son and us, the church, as a relationship? One day there'll be a marriage. Did you, did you know that? One day there will be. Today we're in a state of betrothal. One day in heaven there'll be a marriage and the Bible describes that after that marriage that between Jesus and the bride that's us the church that we will be together forever in heaven and then there'll be that great marriage supper of the Lamb that the Bible describes in Revelation 19. You say that's great Pastor Kevin what's your point? My point is this, just as my marriage is not about me, it's about Pam, my relationship Christ with Christ is not about me, it's about Him. It's not about me. And when we make our, our lives about me, about you making your life about you, it can get really empty in a hurry. Today we're going to talk about that. It's not about me. You've made your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Pick up with me in verse number 12. We're going to read through verse 20. You ready? 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for, the food, for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, God raised Jesus, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Exclamation point. See that? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexually immoral, a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You don't own yourself, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, church family, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, as I often do, and have been in this series repeating myself every week, might I still hasten to remind us to where we are in this book of 1 Corinthians. Those who may be watching on Mount Pleasant anywhere, you say, what is happening? Well, let's just succinctly say this. The church at Corinth is a mess. It is an absolute train wreck. They are divided, they are disloyal, they are decadent, and I believe this is primarily because they have a wrong understanding of who they are in Christ. Instead of seeing their liberty and freedom in Christ as something to help them walk in holiness, they instead were using this liberty as a license to sin. They were excusing their sin. Hey, listen, we can excuse anything, guys. Everything that we do, we've got a good excuse for. Just ask us. Why do you do what you do? Well, I'll tell you. Because this is why I do what I do. And see, this is why you should agree with me that what I'm doing is good and right, and even when it's not. Human beings, man, I'm telling you, we can excuse everything. We, I'm telling you, we're good lawyers. We convince ourselves and then we're the judge and go bang with the gavel. Good to go with that, even when it's sin. The church at Corinth was excusing sin. Church family, they were so misguided in their understanding of Christian liberty that there was a guy who was having an intimate, illicit affair with his stepmama, and the church knew about it. Chapter 5 did nothing about it. Just looked the other way, condoned it. Remember all of the lifestyles that we looked at last week that the Corinthians had been delivered from? You say, last week? I don't remember what I had for lunch today. How can I? Okay, I'm with you. So I'm going to show you the list from last week. Remember the list from last week? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. These are all the lifestyles that the people had been saved from. Such were some of you. It's written in past tense, verse 11. So what were they saved from? Here are these lifestyles. See them again? Some who were sexually immoral were delivered out of that lifestyle. The idolater delivered out of that lifestyle. The adult delivered out of that lifestyle, the homosexual delivered out of that lifestyle, thieves, the greedy, the drunkard, the reviler, the swindler, they were all delivered. Church family, here's the problem though. They continued, the Corinthian church continued to wrongfully think that they could fall back into any of those lifestyles that we just saw and somehow they'd still be okay. And they had an excuse for everything. And I want you to see this. Go back to verse 12 in your Bibles. Now I want you to notice the quotation marks around the first phrase in verse 12. Watch this, because it's actually quotations twice. You ready? Here goes, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. See, that's a quote. You say, who's he quoting? Paul's quoting them. He said, y'all keep saying, everything's lawful for me, M meaning I can do anything I want to do. That, that's our translation. He says, but not all things are helpful. Some translations say not all things are beneficial. He says, he says it again. He said, y'all say all things are lawful for me, quotations. He says, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
This phrase was so common and popular among the people at Corinth that all things are lawful, that it was their excuse to sin. They said it was their, well, the church, they had a false understanding of Christian liberty. By the way, um, we're going to be coming to Christian liberty uh, when we get to chapter 8, and we'll do that starting July the 26th, and we'll have a, a brand new series we're going to call True Freedom. But see, they, they, I can give you a little hint here. They were using their freedom as a license to sin. The Corinthians were treating intimate activity with another person, which, by the way, is sin if it's done outside of me. Listen, I know what the culture says, okay? I, I get it. I, I mean, those who are watching today, I understand that the culture says, if you're in love, do whatever. And, and so people are afraid to actually take the Word of God. By the way, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It's actually God's Word. It's His roadmap for life. This is the authority. Because, see, the, the trends of culture are going to continue to change. How do you think America saw sexual immorality in 1950? Huh? How do we see it today in 2020? If the Lord tarries is coming, what will be sexually immoral in another 20 or 30 years? You understand? Anything goes. Because the culture always goes that way. Culture is like water. It flows to the area of least resistance. But the Word of God says that sex outside of marriage is immorality. See, God designed us to be in a relationship in marriage. It's like a fire is good in a fireplace. But if you build a, flyer, a fire in the middle of the den floor, it can get out of control and burn the house down. Because the fire is not meant for the den floor. It's meant for the fireplace. The fireplace for sexual intimacy, God designed it, is in marriage. And God is not some cosmic killjoy going, yeah, I designed that for you and it's pleasurable. And so I just did that so that you can't be happy. See, we believe somehow Satan has twisted our thinking into thinking that we can do things Satan's way and it's actually more pleasurable. God protects us. Like the highway puts guardrails on a mountain road to protect us. God has designed marriage and these intimate relationships to protect us from all kinds of things. The church at Corinth hadn't figured that out. They said, well, we can do whatever we want to do. We're free, so go for it. See, that's verse 13. Here's another quote. Watch verse 13. He quotes them again. He says, y'all say food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one, Paul says, the body and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You know what they were doing, church? They were saying, just like when I get hungry and my appetite makes me want to eat food, food for the stomach, hey, when my body and my appetite for intimacy is, gets hungry, that's okay too. You know, they're both appetites given by God. So go for it. Piece of chocolate cake, want it, eat it. See that woman, not my wife, it's okay, want it, have her. We're not married, want to have that relationship, want it, have it. You know who that's about? You. You. See, and we take this thing, Jesus said, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. We're not following Jesus. 
when we're living in sin. And there's no happiness in that. I don't know how to get this across. Listen, I follow Jesus Christ. I love Jesus. I've made that decision. Listen, it feels good to be good. Are you hearing me? It feels good to be good. So often as Christians, even Christians somehow start buying back into this mess like the Corinthians were, that it can feel good to be bad. No, it doesn't. You, you might fake it, but you lay your head on your pillow at night, and you know what the truth is. You know the truth is that as a follower of Christ, you cannot be happy unless you're following Him. Oh, you can try. It'll leave you empty. Paul said food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. But he says, come on, guys. He said, you're using that as an excuse. See, one day my body's going to die. And will my stomach need food after that? This is yes, this is no. This would be no. My stomach will not need food because I'll be dead. My body's going to die. I won't need food. But is my body important? Yeah, I don't know. You, you die. I mean, you know. Yes, it's important. You don't want to know why it's important? Because God's going to raise it up. You understand that there's something that's called the harpazo in the Greek. It's called the snatching away. And that's going to happen with the bride of Christ at some point when Jesus comes back to this earth, or in the sky rather, to get us. 1 Thessalonians 4. What's that called? It starts with an R. The rapture. And that could happen in the next 10 seconds because all prophecy has been fulfilled for the return of Jesus. And so what's going to happen? Out there at that grave, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will rise first and the ground will burst open and coming out of the grave will come bodies. God will reconstruct. You say, what about the guy blown up on the battlefield out in, you know, uh, Korea, back in the Korean War? God has no problem collecting all the molecules of that individual that's floating around in space, bringing it all back together and sitting in their body will go right in the air and be rejoined with their spirit. Because if I died 10 seconds from now, what would happen to me? Most likely I'd fall off this stage and fall on the floor, right? But that's not me. That's just my vessel, my jar of clay. Where would I go to be absent from the body when you die is to be present with whom? The Lord. So my spirit would leave my body and I would, I'm going to be with Christ. But understand that the body isn't so important that just as Jesus' body was raised from the, from the dead, he walked in his glorified body. They knew it was him, remember? They weren't sure it was him because, I mean, he, the last time they saw him, he was mutilated on a cross. And so they thought it was a ghost, right? And so what did he do? He said, give me some of that fish to eat. And he ate fish in the upper room to prove that, and I like that fact because we can eat and, you know, in our glorified bodies. That'll be cool. No calories and no problems, no weight gain. You know, no ellipticals in heaven, right? No treadmills. But they knew Jesus. What's the point? You say, what's your point? That our bodies are important. And God's going to raise them up one day. See, look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord. He did on Easter Sunday morning. And he will also raise us up by his power. You are not your own. Your body is not your body. You say, yeah, it is. I can do what I want to with my body. Not if you're saved. Because it's not about you. It's about Him. It's about Christ. The Corinthians, they were living it up. In fact, they were so promiscuous that there was a phrase used in Achaia. Corinth was found in the region known as Achaia. 
And that phrase was to be Corinthianized. You know what that means? That meant, if somebody said that you had been Corinthianized, that, mean, that meant that you had been to a temple. I'll show you a picture of this temple in a minute. And that you had been a part of a temple prostitute act of worship. To be Corinthianized. Can you imagine having a town name and it's for something so decadent and, and, and diseased as that? Temple prostitution? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if somebody made up that phrase for Wilkesboro? You've been Wilkesboroized. You know, I mean, it's terrible to be known for something like that. I mean, kind of like driving into town and, well, seeing a big old sinkhole out here beside a Taco Bell. We're kind of known for that. You know, it's not a very positive thing. That hole's been there for three years. Paul says, you got wrong thinking, church. You're allowing your liberty to be used for sin, and it's dominating you. You're being dominated by sin. That word dominate in verse 12 that we read means to enslave to enslave. Can I ask you today, would you look at me just for a moment? What's dominating your life? What is it that you can't get enough of? You want to know what dominates our lives? I can tell you in two ways. Where you spend your time and your money. Where you spend your time and your money. Where you spending your time, where you spending your money. That's dominating your life. What role does Christ have in your life? What role does Jesus have in your life? Do you read the Bible? Do you pray? Do you spend any time with Him? So often we're like the Egyptians. You know, the children of Israel, well, they were hauled off to Egypt and the Egyptians put them in bondage. And then the children of Israel, they were told to leave. What were they told to take with them from Egypt? Nothing. They, the, the Egyptians gave them gold. And they ended up boiling that down and making a golden calf out of it. We're not to add leaven to our lives. Remember we saw that a few weeks ago? That's sin. We're not to let a bad apple spoil the bunch. See, the Corinthians were falling back into sin and it was dominating them. I want, I want to show you probably the greatest passage of Scripture on sin domination. And, and I want to do that by way of having you do two things at once. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6 in your Bibles, but I also want you to see the screens. We've put up there, this is the temple of Aphrodite. Now don't get this confused with this temple I've shown you before from Ephesus, the temple of, of Artemis or temple of Diana. But they're one and the same in the fact that what was carried on there was temple prostitution. Could you imagine going to church and, and being involved in an illicit relationship with a prostitute? And that could be male or female. Can you imagine that? That's how decadent the, decide, the society had gotten. That that was considered okay. Married couples were okay with that. Can you imagine I want to show you, turn to Romans 6, and I want you to see what the Scripture teaches about sin and the domination of sin. If you made your way there, go to Romans 6. Jump down to verse 6 with me. Romans 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him. Who's Him? Jesus. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, of course that's figurative, we believe we will also live with Him, and we will one day be raised to life to join Him in heaven. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves what? To sin. 
dead and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now watch verse 12. This is a plea. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It's, your, it's a choice to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present. See that word present? You can, you can read it as present, right? Wrap up a present. You are a present to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's a fancy word for right living. For Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Church, grace gives us the ability to live without being enslaved to sin. That's what grace is. There's this idea that grace today allows the Christian to do whatever they want to do. That I'm free and I'm, I have liberty and I can do anything I want to do. No, that's called bondage. Bondage. I'll ask again, is there anything dominating your life today? If it's Jesus, great. But if it's not, that's your God. I don't care what you say. Are you a Christian today? You don't have to answer. It's a rhetorical question. But if you're a Christian, Jesus should be dominating your life. So if you name the name of Christ, but you're living in sin, and you have no guilt about it at all, let me tell you something. I question whether or not you're really born again. You may have walked an aisle and prayed some prayer and shook a preacher's hand and got wet, but that doesn't mean that you're born again. Jesus said you'll know them by the way they're living. That means by the fruit they're bearing. What kind of fruit are you bearing? These people in Corinth had wrong thinking. Just as the children of Israel. You know, they came out of Egypt, and guess where they wanted to go back? Remember what they told Moses? Take us back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? You want to go back to bondage? They wanted to go back to bondage. C could you imagine if, if sin could, could just walk in here and it would be a person? You, you pick a sin. And, and you or I just look at it and go, cuff me. Put me in chains. Why would we do that if we're born again? Why would we walk out of the grave, take off the grave clothes, but then five minutes later say, wrap me back up in the grave clothes, stick me back in the tomb, and cover it with a stone, and I'll be in bondage to that thing? And people, I'm telling you, Christians who try to live in sin like that, you're miserable. You might think you're getting away with something or somehow that it's okay, but you know deep in your heart, you know deep in your soul, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. Listen, I'll say it again. It feels good to be good. It really does to walk in Christ. There's joy and there's power in that. Not to let yourself be pulled down by sin. That you're just walking away from things that once held you in bondage. And you're like, wow, I used to fall to that attitude. Wow, I used to fall to that sin. But man, in the power of Christ, I'm, I'm free. It's, it's, it's true. I, it's the most amazing thing to be born again, truly. We were singing that song, Pastor Brad, I love how he sings Graves in the Gardens. You know that line in there? Oh, there's nothing. And then he says, better than you, there's nothing better than, or is there? Is there something better? Is there? 
See, because whatever you're allowing to dominate your life, if it's not Jesus, you're actually saying to Jesus, that's better than you. That's better than you. I will take that over you. I will take that to satisfy me. And you know what the deceit of the devil is? The deceit of the devil is it's a dangling carrot in front of, of a donkey and you never actually get what you want, which is satisfaction that lasts and a fullness of life. All you get is some temporary pleasure to salve your conscience and you're aching inside. You're aching inside for truth and you might not even recognize it until the Holy Spirit opens up your eyes right now to see truth that it's in Christ it's in Jesus listen Jesus is a person he is sitting in heaven he's got flesh and bone and skin like you he was one of us he came down here to take care of us to take care of the sin so that we might not walk in sin Adam and Eve blew it in the garden okay and we're all born sinners you got a belly button you're a sinner okay that's your problem. And your problem is, my problem is, we cannot cure ourselves. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. If you're trying to have life outside of Jesus, it'll leave you empty. You say, oh, I'm, I'm living it up, I'm living it up. Your day's coming. See, sin carries with it its own consequences. Is there anything better than Jesus? There's not. But so often Christians live and act like it. You see, church, we're members of Christ. He lives in us. Go back to 1 Corinthians now. Go back to chapter 6. Look at verse 15. Watch this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Understand this. As a follower, as a believer in Jesus Christ, He lives inside of you. Listen, this morning I was talking to a, a, a man. Actually, he called me yesterday, and he said, uh, Pastor Kevin, I, I, I want to put my son online. He's got something to tell you. Eight-and-a-half-year-old boy, he said, Pastor Kevin, I got saved this morning. Anyway, he told me what happened, but the, the man got back on the phone, and he goes, yeah, I was fixing a leaking toilet in my house, and he said, my son walks in. He said, I'm sitting there on the floor trying to fix this seal in my toilet, and he said, I look up at my son, and then I look back up at him, and he said, I knew something was wrong. He said, son, you okay? He said, he started crying. He said, Daddy, I need to be saved. And the, the gentleman led his son to Christ. How cool is that? Hey, Dad, could you do that? He said, I don't know. Can you Google the Roman road? Can you Google Roman road? Can you read those scriptures? And can you look at your son or daughter in the eye and pray with them? That's all it takes to know whether they're genuine or not. He said, yeah, he wanted to be saved. And so, you know what the young man told his dad driving to church this morning? He said, Daddy, I feel different today. He should. He's born again. He knows that if he dies today, he told me, he sat over there in the first service, he said, I'm going to heaven, Pastor Kevin. The joy on his face. It was amazing. See, when that young man gave his heart to Christ in his mom and dad's bathroom yesterday morning, the Spirit of God came to indwell him, that eight-and-a-half-year-old little boy, and saved him. He sealed him up until the day of redemption. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, and He seals us up, literally, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. So guess what? That young man... Everywhere he goes now, Jesus goes with him. By the way, 
He goes with you if you're saved. You say, well, I'm just doing this alone. Nobody's seeing any of this. But no, no, no. No, if you're born again, the Spirit of God came to indwell you. And so you, you're actually taking Jesus with you wherever you go. So let me give you an example. Sir, young man, young man, you're in a dating relationship with a young lady, and you drive up to the lake, and you go park somewhere, and you and that young lady begin doing something. You understand what I'm saying, right? And you say, well, it's just the two of us. No, if you're born again, there's three people in the car. You, your girlfriend, and Jesus. You're taking him with you. That's why Paul said, would you join yourself to a prostitute? Why are you continuing to go to the temple of Aphrodite? You've been saved from that. Such were some of you. That's verse 16. He said, or do you not know? See this, 1 Corinthians 6, 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I said it earlier, we all know that when God designed family, He brought it by way of Adam and Eve, and He made Adam and Eve biologically to be able to procreate and produce other human beings. That's astounding to me. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. And so here we are. The man and the woman become one flesh. Their bodies come together and they fit perfectly together anatomically. God created us that way, male and female. So what happens when a marriage is consummated is that the bodies fit together. And that act is more than just physical. It's more than just biological. It's also spiritual. That's the becoming one. In that act, the entire personality is involved. That act involves the whole person, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And this is why we're told to avoid sexual immorality if it's outside of marriage because it has devastating effects on the person. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. This is a sticky note. Watch now. How many times can I do this? How many times can I stick this note to this podium before, after a period of time, what happens? I try to stick it to the podium. Do you understand that the human brain, when you're in relationship after relationship after relationship, that you neurologically, you are bonding with that person? And what happens is that, 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 that there's a glue that literally it's, a, it's, a, it's set off that, that over a period of time when you finally do come to an altar and let's say you get married, that you've lost all your sticky. <laughs> it's neurological. And this is why we have so many marriages that fall apart. We've had breakup after breakup after breakup after breakup leading up to the marriage so that when you finally get married, you can't it, mentally, emotionally, physically, biologically, you've lost your sticky. People say, oh, it's just an act. No, it's not. The sex act is the whole body. So what does the Scripture teach us? Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I want you to see this image of this painting. Y'all remember Joseph? You remember him from Genesis 39? 
Remember that um, he was working uh, for a guy named Potiphar. You say, what is that? He pots plants? No, Potiphar. This is the captain of the guard of the army of Pharaoh. So this guy, Potiphar, could pick any woman in the land he wanted because he was part of Pharaoh's cabinet, so he could have his choice of women, okay? So she was beautiful. Well, she took a liking to Joseph. She clear, Genesis 39 says she cleared the entire house of everybody. No servants in there. And, and Potiphar's gone. He's out on the battlefield. And she says, come be with me. Joseph literally ran out of his coat. He said, how can I do this thing against my master? He said, against my boss man. But most of all, against my God. He got out. He ran. How about you? Are you running? Are you running? You know what so many people do? They come right up to the edge. They come right up to the edge and they'll go, well, we've, you know, we're, we're, we're engaged now. We got a ring. We're going to get married in a few months. And so we're, we're, we're not like, you know, but, but yeah, and you got all these excuses. It's so easy. I know. Listen, when Pam and I got engaged, when I gave her a ring, I told her, I said, I want to tell you something. Baby, I can't be with you alone anymore because I'm going to jump your bones. I'm just, I'm just, let's be frank. You be earnest, we'll get serious about this, okay? So I said, even though I had an apartment, I said, we cannot go and be together. I remember we were bringing in some stuff. The church had a shower for us, and, and we, we were bringing stuff into my apartment where we were going to live over in Moravian Falls, a little old uh, basement place in an older couple's home. Pay $200 a month rent. Can you imagine that? The whole place was, was just decked out in luxurious harvest gold linoleum, including the bedroom. I mean, it's, it's, that was, wow, what a place, okay? Had to go to the laundromat because we couldn't put a washing machine in there because the guy's septic tank wouldn't handle it. So we went to the laundromat, washed the clothes. I did have a dryer. We went back and dried them at the house. Man, we were living large. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all remember those days? We were bringing in stuff from that shower. And, and, and I was going out and she was coming in and we one of those movie moments dun, dun, dun. I said we got to get out of here she said there's stuff still in the car to unload I said we got to get out of here I'll unload this later she looked at me and she goes you're right let's get out of here you know what I'm talking about because that's how God wired us I do this with young people all the time. You meet somebody. You like the little things about them. I'm pointing to the big finger. You like the big things about them. You're pointed in the same direction. And we tell you not to do what? The Bible says not to do what? What finger am I not joining? The wedding finger. How long do you think I can hold this pose like this without those two fingers touching? Not long. Because without you thinking about it, they're going to touch. And that's the way God designed us, see? And so we start these, these relationships when they're 16, 17 years of age. You know, and, and we're going to get into this next week, but you've got the average age of a young man getting married that's 29 years old, a young lady 27 years old. So you understand what's happening in our culture? I told Pam, I said, we've got to stay pure, and we did. And it wasn't easy. But we did not set ourselves up to be alone. Some of you need to run. You need to flee. You know in your heart what is right. And you, can, you, you know what the Scripture teaches. 
But somehow or another, like the Corinthians, it's so easy just to kind of fall back into it. And you like, you want your cake and eat it too. I get that. But see, it's going to leave you empty. You don't think it will, but it does. And you know deep in your soul, if you're born again, you can't live in that lifestyle. And there'll be joy in your life. If you're a follower of Christ, you can't live that way. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will what? flee. The problem is we don't resist him anymore. We don't even try to put up a fight. The Bible says in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God of the universe will draw near to you. I'm telling you, if you, listen, if you can ever experience the presence of Jesus Christ in your life, some of you have never experienced him. You, you've walked an aisle, you shook a preacher's hand, you got baptized. But I'm telling you, if you know Jesus, there's nothing better than him. That's why the lyrics of that song are so true. Because I can testify, there's nothing better than Jesus. Nothing. Many of you are nodding your heads because that's true in your life too. One last time, here's a picture of me and Pam. Man, I love that lady. Man, I love that. How in the world has she put up with me all this time? You know, we got married. I actually had hair. That's, I might even show you a picture of that next week just so you'll believe it. Because some of you don't believe I had hair. Well, I did. You know, everything I do affects her. You say, what are you talking about? Because we're together in one spirit. She knows stuff going on inside of me that I hadn't even verbalized. You men that's been married a while, you get that. You go, Lord have mercy. How do you know that? See, we're one flesh, Pam and I. And see, in Christ, we're one. So if you think you're going to be able to bring something into your life as a Christian that's sin, and it's only happening to you, you're bringing that into Jesus. You might as well just sit him in the back seat of the car. And that's verse 19. You say, why do you say that? Because, see, I don't own myself. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you know Jesus? Albert, jump down and show them the picture of Jesus. This picture of Jesus is actually Jim Caviezel. Jim Caviezel played Christ in the movie The Passion of the Christ. But I, I think that's probably a pretty good depiction of what Jesus looks like right now in heaven. I do not believe Jesus has blue eyes because he was born to Jewish parents in Israel. I believe he probably has brown eyes and olive-colored skin. I'm convinced that Jesus has a beard because the Scripture teaches that he had a beard and they plucked it out when he was heading to the cross. The soldiers did. Jesus right now in heaven, whether he looks exactly like that or not, is in heaven, and he is looking in this room. He's looking at where you're watching this right now. He sees you, and he loves you, and he says, if you will do it my way, I know the way. I've written the guide. I will give you life. Or you can do it your way, and just like the Corinthians, fall back to that way of living and create catastrophe. My prayer is you'll choose Christ. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Find us at www.mpbc.church and on Facebook at facebook.com slash mpbcnc. 
Have a great day, and we hope you'll join us again next week.